Welcome, everyone, to episode 55 of the Becoming Conscious podcast. On this episode, I have a guest by the name of Forrest Landry speaking with me. Forrest is a philosopher, a writer, a researcher, a scientist. He has developed some really profound work, especially his book, with the title The Imminent Metaphysics, which is a lot of the basis from which we build on this conversation. Oris's work ranges from the study of ethics, system design, to civilization design, and existential risk. In this episode, we talk a lot about not only the foundations of his work, but we go very deeply into the implications of his work. What are the ways that his work can be seen playing out in society today? So without further ado, Forrest Landry. All right. Awesome. Welcome to the podcast. Huh? <laughs> um, awesome. So a few of the topics that have been really um, interesting that I would love to dive into with with you Um uh, specifically like this, I've been finding it fascinating in your work to see how this con like this concept of triples or like these like triplications that you have, they're like, there's so many different, um, examples of these triples that you've talked about and they all seem to have this really cool dynamic relationship. Um, and so there's, there was a few triples that I was really interested in, um, that you talked about and that feel related. And I think you've talked about ways in which they were related, um, and it feels really interesting to explore some of the implications of these triples that you talk about. Um, and so the, the triples that are fascinating me most right now are value, purpose, and meaning, um, strategy, culture, and vision, principles, rules, and practices, um, human, machine, nature, and then kind of the overarching like choice, change, causation. That feels like a little bit more like a it orients a lot of the other ones. It, it I notice right away that those are triples that are very central to understanding civilization design type issues. Yes. Yes. You're thinking about relevance. Like what are the, what are the triples that I'm finding personally relevant mm -hmm. in the world today? Like in terms of just how do we think about some of the major dilemmas yeah. facing humanity, those triples really come to mind. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, ex excellent picks as far as uh, how to organize this conversation. Amazing. Yeah, because I was I was as going through in, imminent metaphysics and like a lot of them are like really abstract and I'm like having a really hard time like grokking them. Um, but it feels like just reading that kind of provided some sort of foundation for working with these somewhat more concrete triples. Um, so, yeah, definitely very curious in exploring those. And then. And then, all right, and then there's one other topic that feels relevant here, which is, yeah, so civilization, existential risk. Um, you've, you've talked a bit about, you know, how so much of civilization is being co-opted for artificial purposes right. um, and what would it look like to, to change that. And I think that was kind of where the um, value, purpose, meaning, strategy, culture, vision comes in right. to start with culture rather than strategy what what does that actually look like what are the implications of that and like maybe playing that out and then i was kind of making the connection in with imminent metaphysics when you talk about the six paths 
And so there's like kind of science and technology are very much like um, artificial. Here's how you do things. Here's what we're doing, like causality. And then also like how does religion, mysticism, magic play into maybe um, bringing back the organic or, or, or counteracting some of the um, forces that science and technology are, are uh, how the, those are shaping culture towards causality. Exactly. So one of the things that uh, I've been reflecting on lately, like, and when I say lately, I'm talking like literally the last few weeks. Amazing. Um, which, which comes into, uh, you know, basically a lot of these terminologies, like these triples that you're speaking about. And, you know, so first of all, again, these are ways in which we are, the, the triples themselves are tools that sort of inform the thinking. So the thinking in this case happens to be about how people organize their individual personal lives, mm-hmm. whether that's based upon a kind of basis of work relationships or personal friendship, family type relationships. Mm-hmm. So in other words, if, if I think about the kinds of things that I'm finding irrelevant in my personal life, I'm noticing that I'm really wanting to focus on personal relationships rather than professional relationships. Mm-hmm. And this is essentially a reflection of the difference between, say, uh, value, purpose, and meaning, which was the, one of the first triples that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, when we think about professional relationships, we're thinking about the purpose of the relationship, the work that is done. And when I think about personal relationships, I'm thinking about the play that happens the way in which we support one another's values or the way in which we uh, kind of share and enjoy life and celebrate the the, the kind of beauty of being alive. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, when I think about, <laughs> excuse me, uh, when I think about the kind of forces that shape people's lives, a lot of times, you know, the business moves or the career opportunities suggest, oh, you need to go to this is a city because that's where our center of operations are. Um, and, you know, as careers change, people move from place to place, you know, they get a medical degree and this hospital is operating uh, with a, you know, career option for that to become where you can now work. You will relocate your family and essentially be forced to give up friendship relationships and, uh, you know, some, some amount of personal connections Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, the local grocer, for example, or you have developed relationships with people largely in the context of local restaurants or things like that. And so there's there's this sort of dynamic that our personal social lives are fragmented by the professional lives. And it isn't except in cases like, you know, there's a factory town where people are essentially working their entire lives in the same place that they actually get to have stability in the sense of who do they know and how do they know them? Mm-hmm. And so in, in, in this sense, uh, given the gig economy and the uh, idea of professional focus, you know, the kinds of things that are not so much uh, job oriented, but career oriented. And the fact that there's a lot more shift and instability in the sense of you know, people may work at this place and then they may work at this other place and then they get a job over there. The the vote with your feet element uh, ends up becoming fragmenting at a social level. 
So I moved from the East Coast to the West Coast. And as a result, I I lost a lot of the community relationships, almost all of the friendships that I had on the East Coast, because mm-hmm. there just isn't that many opportunities to see people in person. So, you know, Zoom calls can help some, you know, video calls or audio calls can help some, but there's there's something missing in this the kind of communication process that happens when you're in person. There's a sense of um, environmental possibility. So if somebody walked into my room right now, I would be able to engage with them, but you would have a harder time because you wouldn't even be able to see them unless they turn the camera around. Yeah. And also there's things that happen in my environment that you wouldn't be able to respond to because you're literally in another place. So like if, I don't know, I dropped something and broke it, you wouldn't be able to help me clean up the glass, for example. So it, it, and it matters more in situations where there's kind of an emergency or where there's a person who literally needs to just get a hug. Right. Like the physical contact is reassuring at a nervous system, biological level. Like there's a kind of attunement that goes on between a mother and a child through the physical contact that the child learns how to be nourished and receive uh, a sense of, you know, psychological uh, safety from from the physical contact. And so in a sense, it's a bit like I'm recognizing that when we're thinking about the relationship between, say, nature, humanity, and technology, that right now technology is largely in the driver's seat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, corporations, business process and practices, um, large-scale governance, um, govern- governments, really. Um, not, not you know, So institutional process, whether it be school, school institutions or um, professional institutions or businesses or you know, medical or, or even psychotherapeutic, all of these things are institutional design. Mm-hmm. They're based upon a model of hierarchy and transactionalism. But families, although they may have some hierarchy and transactional elements, are actually relationships based upon care. So, you know, if, if you're thinking about legal systems, like um, the notion of an arm's length relationship is is written into what is a kind of legal contract like that I that I that there's a meeting of the minds but not a meeting of the bodies so in effect there's a there's a sense of how I hold myself emotionally is not part of the way in which we write legal contracts it's just it's a functional document it's a, it's a document that describes you know contract law congressional law fiduciary law all of these in a sense are describing relationships that are not friendship relationships not intimate relationships they are Mm-hmm. Um, uh, family relationships usually you, you don't normally have a contract between a mother and a child so in in this sense when we're thinking about how to move towards a social or cultural process that is grounded in the personal care-based relationships communities mm-hmm. as having a higher precedence in terms of where people choose to be what kinds of choices they're making in their lives. It's not on a professional, functional, purpose-driven basis. It's on the meaningfulness value basis. Yeah. So, um, and by value, I'm talking about things like family values or um, if it's a intentional community, what would be the intention? What's the practices that they've been engaged in? Um, when I'm thinking about meaningfulness, I'm thinking about things of communities of place, as in that the, that the, that the life that is the life that people have with each other and with the land, with the environment around them, um, is is taken as a kind of primacy. 
So that would be meaningfulness-based. And, and in a sense, the metaphysics is suggesting in, in very direct ways that meaningfulness is more fundamental than value and purpose. And moreover than that, that there's a kind of confusion about value. There's embodied value, which is what I'm talking about when I say things like family values, mm-hmm. versus abstract values, which would be something like money or wealth. And so... Um, in a sense, the notion of wealth can also be split into this abstract component, which we call, you know, financial uh, liquidity, for example, and and embodied values, which would be things like houses and roads and, um, you know, just trees and things like that. So there's a sense in which if we are wanting to get clearer about what kinds of things are needed to address the relationship between, say, Um, nature, humanity, and technology, that we're in a sense having to re-emphasize the natural in support of the human rather than treating the human as being in support of the machine and treating the machine as essentially taking from nature rather than providing for nature. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, right now, there's a sort of psychological delusion that technology will serve us. And this is this is essentially the core of the uh, artificial intelligence uh, debate or conversation that's kind of going on right now is that we think in some kind of uh, hype driven way that artificial intelligence will support humanity, will provide benefits to humanity, that it will create all sorts of inventions and it will solve all sorts of problems and that human life will be improved as a result of this. But this isn't the first time those promises have been made. We've heard those things with the introduction of the internet. We heard those things going all the way back to, um, you know, the loom and the printing press, right? Mm-hmm. The industrial revolution, um, you know, in textiles, for example, uh, resulted in a substantial displacement of workers. And there was this thing called the Luddite movement, which was essentially saying, hey, by the way, you're displacing our careers. You're displacing our our, our relationship to one another and 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 how communities work by with these textile machines and, and, and the promise of labor saving devices was that people would go into a, a community of having more leisure. Mm-hmm. And this was essentially a century ago, more than a century ago, that these promises were being made that labor saving devices in the kitchen and, you know, with refrigeration and so on and so forth. Yes, it did save labor. It saved a lot of labor. Um, in, in a certain sense, the amount of mechanical energy that, that, that human beings had to invest in providing for their safety and comfort uh, went down vastly, right? We were able to replace, um, you know, driving horses around to driving carriages around. And the carriages, in some sense, are just lower maintenance than a horse. So there's a, a real recognition that real benefits have certainly been accrued by machinery, but the distribution of that benefit was far from equal. Right. The, the, a person that was a factory owner, for example, that bought machinery to make textiles rather than empl- employing, you know, a dozen workers to do the same job, to do the same amount of labor output, didn't take the profits and proceeds from that and distribute to those 10 people that were displaced. If he purchased the machine, he expected that the yield and income and the profit from that, the efficiency gains, which, by the way, anywhere you have an efficiency gain, that is fundamentally profit. Right. Mm-hmm. It's the expenses have been accounted for already. And any increase in, in output or productivity basically means that there's now an increase in this in this uh, capital that can be received by 
um, the, the machine owner. Mm-hmm. And so in effect, the distribution of wealth or the distribution of, of, of resources that resulted from the machinery didn't go to the people that were affected by it the most. They actually went back to the, to the machine owners and makers. So the same is true today. I mean, we think that artificial intelligence will be in service to humanity, but it'll actually be in service to just a few people mm-hmm. who happen to be the people who are um, most positioned to basically develop and make use and leverage this technology. So in this sense, uh, you know, there's there's a hype function that's going on where lots and lots of people are being told, oh, overall, this is a good idea. But the same cycle of of inequality increases is, is certainly going to happen, right? Because the social forces that are driving that haven't been addressed in any substantive way for any point in history. Like if we if you look back, you know, literally 100 years, 1,000 years, it mostly doesn't make a difference. You're, you're still looking at uh, unconscious drivers of social process that um, increases the Gini coefficient, i.e. the level of inequality in a society in terms of who gets to make choices and who doesn't. Mm-hmm. And so to some extent, choice is a fundamentally cooperative process. So as you uh, narrow the process of who gets to make choices more and more in institutional hierarchical design, transactional process, driving this sort of uh, increase of of inequality, then it becomes then the society as a whole, uh, the planet as a whole becomes less and less able to respond to the kinds of choices that we're faced with. So this level of brittleness goes up and up and up until eventually civilization comes apart. Unfortunately, at this point, there's so much technology in the field that the level of entanglement and therefore collateral damage in the natural ecosystem um, is is already uh, catastrophic. So, so there's a sense of uh, we, if if we're going to pass Fermi paradox type considerations as it, is it possible for humanity to be here uh, in a healthy way, in in a natural and a balanced way, in a way that is a life that is uh, desirable to be living? You know, something that is has has components of dignity and safety and belongingness kind of built into it. Um, then, then in a lot of ways, we're really needing to become conscious of these currently unconscious forces, forces that. Um, partially emerge from evolution, you know, how how our nervous systems are organized and how we relate to one another at mm-hmm. social and cultural levels that have a preference for um, transactional relationships because to some extent that's easier. It's conceptually simpler to think in terms of hierarchies and um, transactional relationships than the kind of complexity that is actually present in the real relational world. Mm-hmm. So developing relationships based upon meaningfulness and care, to some extent, takes a lot more cognitive work. You're talking more like the kinds of dynamics that would occur in a tribe and why Dunbar's number is relevant and so on. So in effect, we're now at a kind of uh, crucial point in history where um, we're, we're needing to develop skills, uh, you know, profound skills in the space of um, how do we manage, uh, you know, the forces of, of of evolution and how do we manage the forces inherent in technology itself? Technology is fundamentally, um, it's, it's a linear process. It starts with, you know, resources that are extracted. Mm-hmm. Um, it transforms them into machinery and then eventually the machinery fails and parts are replaced. And, you know, you, you end up with essentially an accumulation of, of things in a landfill or something like that. So, 
in that sense, you're depleting from, from one place. Elements and atoms are moving away from places in nature where they were previously, and they're accumulating mm-hmm. in places uh, in nature where they, they weren't previously. Um, so you end up with a toxicity kind of action. So, you know, one thing we could observe right away is, is that we actually need to get more skillful at recycling. We need to get more skillful about all the places that atoms end up where they're not supposed to be, like carbon in the atmosphere and causing global warming. So in effect, you know, a, a lot of our efforts are about becoming much more skillful at making technology work and look a lot more like nature. And similarly, we're, we're needing to become a lot more skillful at uh, understanding the difference of what causation can do to support choice rather than to essentially have causation dominate choice. So in effect, right now we have human choices being suborned into machinery supporting process. And there's a, there's a sense of rather than having natural choices be supported by technology, they're in a sense being co-opted by it. Um, For example, in society, um, human connection is becoming essentially overcome by systems, by business systems or by institutional systems. And that the, uh, as, as, as Habermas would put it, the, the sort of life world is effectively being eaten by the machine world. And most of us are feeling this in the sense of increased loneliness, right, more right. disconnection, uh, fewer relationships of lower quality and so on. Um, you know, increase in suicide among teenagers and stuff like that are all, these are all symptoms. And so in effect, we're, we're, we're needing to come into a sort of recognition and realization that an understanding of how to make good choices is not actually something that comes out of knowing how to make good use of causal process. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in the sense of the six paths, as you mentioned, science and technology are based on causation. So science is essentially a perception of causal relationships. And technology is an application of causal relationships. And in this sense, we're talking about the essence of what makes science and technology exactly that. But when we're thinking about relationships in the sense of communities, which is why I mentioned religion, because, you know, in that sense, it's sort of like collectively held value systems or um, narrative languages or symbol systems that help a community to make sense of the world and to include people and to include events and to deal with things like births, marriages, life and death, essentially. And so in effect, because there is a a kind of ongoing field of change in all of our lives, we're all growing older and we all have to face, uh, you know, fundamental existential issues uh, because that's just how life works. Um, And the world itself is always changing, not just because of technology, but just because nature does that. You know, seasons, for example, aren't created by human uh, technology processes. They're created by the relationship between the sun and the earth at, you know, planetary level process. So, so in effect, there's a there's a sense here of needing to be able to adapt to change skillfully in terms of the choices we make. And in a sense, we don't know much about how to make good choices. Right? Governance process, exit as, as it exists currently, is being driven into basically two forms: the democratic kind of republic sort of form and the sort of dictatorship monocracy. Um you know, some some form of 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 like top-down hierarchy with a kind of maybe council or single individual at the top. But again, you know, things that 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 in either case um have a tendency to divide people at a relational level. 
Like democracy is is almost perfect at creating wedge issues or discovering wedge issues that more and more successfully divide the population into groups opposed and opposed and for, for example. Yeah. Um, and so, in effect, it's it's kind of like a discovery engine for um, ways to divide a community, and 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 it's 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 convergent on that. So, in a sense, having a a republic cohere with itself at an emotional or symbolic level is actually very challenging. So, so in a sense. Um, you know, there's, there's, it, it is not much better on the, on the, uh, uh, obviously the totalitarian side of things, because, um, if, if, if you're looking at that sort of scenario and people don't get to have their own symbols, it's whatever the broadcast symbols are. Mm-hmm. So, um, in, in either case, it's, it's an extremely fragmented or unhealthy system to either think about capitalism or socialism as being an answer. Neither of those uh, are an answer. If they were an answer, they would have been already quite, quite thoroughly. And so in, in this sense, we're actually needing to sort of step back and to look at what are the kinds of, not necessarily forms, but but basis by which we even make choices. So so in this sense, we, we currently think about choices as being, like if you take Silicon Valley and the internet um, as being kind of uh, exemplars of value systems, the idea would be that, you know, a software engineer would look at the data and based upon the data would make a choice that is responsive to the data, but that actually isn't, it isn't enough because at this particular point, there is a kind of hidden selection that's going on as to which data is relevant. What value systems are we, are we actually like, what, what does success even look like? You know, so, so in effect, you know, causation and science and technology will give you options. It'll tell you what you can do, what, what at least we know that we can do with the current science and technology we have available. And, you know, people can always say, well, maybe we'll get better at finding more options. You know, science and tech could improve and create options that today wouldn't seem achievable, but tomorrow maybe. But neither of, of those things, like knowing what you can do doesn't tell you anything about what you should do. Right, right, right. And so, in effect, while religious narrative process has been basically terrible at understanding the world in a causal sense, it did give us some idea as to how to relate to one another at a cultural level and what sort of values at an embodied level, not an abstract level, but at an embodied level um, were essential for the continuance of communities, to continuance of, of essentially social life and cultural life in the way that uh, was genuinely healthy for the participants. Now, that notion of healthiness was was held largely unconsciously, right? I mean, the, the hierarchy of the church could sometimes also enter into a kind of governance function where they were basically telling the parishioners what to do and how to live. And and, and to some extent, that could diverge from what was genuinely healthy in a, in a, in a sort of whole systems approach. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so in this sense, we can we can start to, to, to look at things like psychology, sociology, anthropology, philosophy, and stuff like that to get a better sense as to what does it genuinely mean to have a healthy human or a healthy family or a healthy community or a healthy world? I mean, um, understanding healthy nations in terms of uh, gross domestic product or um, import export things and stuff like that. Um, you know, there's, 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 there's no real connection to that in the sense of um, what does it mean at an individual level to be healthy and alive and thriving, right? The, the function of governance is, uh, largely to protect the land and the people in a sort of first order basis, but then to help the land and the people to genuinely thrive. And notice land was first. So, so in this sense, there's a, there's, there's a notion here that 
we really need to get better about making choices in a sense of having a notion of what thriving actually looks like, not in the abstract sense of people are wealthy, but in the sense of they actually feel in their lives that, that their body feels good, their relationships feel good, their communities feel good. And, and, and more than just feeling good or looking good, that they are actually good, right? We don't want the illusion of health that's created by a drug that's just an addiction because addictions can be actually quite disabling, right? You're, you feel good in this moment, but you'll feel terrible tomorrow. Or um, in this particular moment, you feel elated, but your relationships come apart. So, so in a sense, there's a, there's a need, and this is kind of what the metaphysics is for, as a sort of toolkit to understand things like causation is not the same as choice. Understanding causation doesn't really help you to understand choice. And that understanding things about health and embodying health at a, at a fundamental level, like what are the implications of the metaphysics in terms of clarifying the discussion about what does it actually mean to live a good life right so so in this sense it's informing things like religion and spirituality or or the sort of romantic elements uh you know I mentioned magic and mysticism i'm thinking about that as being how do we hold symbolism as being at least as important in a romantic sense as how we hold literal facts and truth data information right because the relevance is going to come from the romantic side right what actually matters to people at a at a felt sense in the heart right right so in, a, in the embodied sense of you know is is your heart healthy right? I'm, I'm basically thinking about things in a sort of cardiovascular sense personally but but there's a sense in which as we are becoming more nuanced about our awareness of what is uh, psychologically and sociologically relevant for thriving we get a better sense as to what is the orientation basis by which we make good choices in the world so that the kinds of changes that we are experiencing can be adapted to in a better way. Right, right, right. So this is that whole value, purpose, meaning triangle. It's the whole um, community or culture part as being a priority over function and purpose, which would be kind of a machine orientation. Yeah. Um, and that, that in effect, we, we want to have values and vision be in service to community rather than in service to strategy. Right. So the, so the, so the metaphysics and the axioms essentially reify the relationship between these triples. And these triples are very, very deep in the nature of the kinds of social global governance problems that we are all faced with. These aren't just philosophical issues. These are things that to some extent, the current civilization toolkit, the rules and force of law that we have in place haven't been understood deeply enough to be relevant yet to understanding these kinds of questions. Like how do we respond to these kinds of questions? Mm -hmm. um, it has been observed maybe, uh, you know, again, sort of colloquially here, but uh, most of the psychotherapists that I've talked to or, or people who are sociologists and stuff that I've talked to, have, have, I've asked them what, what percentage of United States families do you think are healthy, healthy in the, in the sense of just, literally being able to raise children that have the skills to be able to raise their own children, right? Because that's kind of a fundamental criterion, right? Is, yeah, is yeah. there enough cultural process that is enabling the next generation to have a culture that would enable them to continue culture? And actually, when you look at the United States, it's reinvented its culture probably every 15, 20 years. 
And so there really isn't a cultural heritage that's stable that would allow for succeeding generations to essentially to know how to raise their own children in a way that was healthy for the children. And we're seeing this in, you know, rampant increases in the number of, of um, you know, psychodynamic issues, the number of people who need therapy and so on and so forth. So there's, there's a sense here that when I ask people this sort of question, there's an estimate being given of, well, it actually seems to me like something like 95% of all people, uh, most family systems are just dysfunctional. Holy. Right. So that basically means that a substantial majority of the people that are walking around on the street are, are experiencing, whether they're conscious of it or not, some form of trauma that is having disabling effects in their lives and may not even realize that. Right. They're having emotional shutdown in one places or hypersensitivity in other places and um, sort of a kind of obsession or, or you know, focus that is uh, to, 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 to a large extent in places which uh, are not serving them at an individual level. So, like I said, rates of addiction are going way, way up. Um, Game based orientations as opposed to connection. Right. So competition having uh, much more preeminence and obviousness than, say, cooperation. Um, and, and, and for example, just, just as another data point, I, uh, a few weeks ago, um, was as I was exploring issues associated with, say, emotional safety or emotional maturity, um, it was like, well, how do I find examples of cultural examples that, you know, like movies that, or books that would describe in a, in a fictional narrative sort of sense, exemplars of emotional maturity. In fact, searching for movies that exemplify emotional maturity and still have wit to be interesting uh, turns out to be impossible to search for. It's like there's there's no recommendation engine that even has any connection to this 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 fundamental thing. It's a complete blind spot. You know, I could I could search for action movies, which fundamentally are based upon a notion of conflict, right? So whatever the protagonist is essentially encountering as a dilemma or as a as a challenge of some sort or another. Um, and, you know, you occasionally may see team dynamics going on. But even in those particular cases, there's a lot of places where the team dynamic isn't actually emotionally connected in a healthy way. You know, people are treating one another in functional ways or professional ways at best. Um, you know, just extending on this point. So I went to see the uh, second uh, Avatar movie. Mm-hmm. And so looking at it through the lens of again, these sort of three core attributes, another one of these triples, um, belongingness, safety, and dignity, right? So you have you have a family that is, because of safety issues, is required to go way far away from their home, right? The relational connections that they have with other people because of this, um, you know, external sort of exogenous pressure, um, you know, the, the technology people coming and and, you know, what they want and so on. And you, you notice, for example, that while the cultures of the sort of natives and so on and so forth are socially integrated, that the cultures associated with the people in the military uh, industrial complex are are totally like emotionally disconnected. Like there's no actual uh, warmth in any of the relationships uh, described on the, the sort of machine world cultures right. versus the kind of relationships that are described in the in the natural world cultures. But even in the family unit that is now basically forced to go far and to transit to you know foreign foreign cultures, which you know provided for some integration, um, you know the family unit is essentially trying to create safety for its own members, 
and, and, and working together, struggling hard to actually do that. Um, but in the dynamics, there's, there's, there's lots of places where there was a trade-off of dignity, particularly of the younger generation, uh, in favor of maintaining dignity in the older generation. And so there were some dilemmas around that in terms of just how the children were able to hold that notion of dignity or not. And so in, in, in this sense, you know, we're seeing this, this higher prioritization of belongingness, second high prioritization of safety, and third high prioritization of, of dignity. And in, in, in this specific sense, I think that in our, our current culture, none of those things are happening. Right. Individual dignity is, for the most part, barely happening. We have, you know, social media accounts where you, in a sense, can create the illusion of dignity through the sort of narcissistic or nar social emphasis. I'm not saying people are nar narcissists, but I'm saying that the medium itself drives us towards behavior patterns, which are based upon image, looks good right. rather than feel good and is almost no connection to actually is good is good for culture, is good for communities to actually cohere, is good for personal relationships and either the family or the friendship sort of sense. Um, that, that play is essentially turned into competition and the cooperative elements that would be necessary for safety, belongingness and dignity at it, either an individual or at a collective level are for the most part lost in favor of uh, pursuit of dollars for illusionary um abstract values right right yeah and it yeah it feels like the um the social media thing is another is another aspect of the co-opting ford machine exactly um, so all of these are examples basically what i'm doing is i'm just weaving together right. the way in which the triples give us insights into the kinds of social problems cultural problems that we currently have mm -hmm. and why we need to shift our basis of choice away from transactional and hierarchical orientations, away from the abstract, towards the embodied, towards things that create emotional relationships, uh, attunement, discernment, rather than, say, uh, judgments and, and the kinds of things which are arm's length process, that, that in effect we're, we're, we're wanting to recognize that to some extent nature and humanity needs to be treated as primary and machine pursuit is secondary. That modernism, um, you know, the, there's a there's the postmodern critique of modernism, basically saying modernism is essentially a motion away from um, nature integration and flow integration to causal process. That system triumphs over nature, and that the um, the the the, the uh, reason can overcome uh, natural and supernatural. And that reason can solve all problems. And actually the answer is no, it, it can't solve all problems. It can solve some problems really, really well. And the toolkit that allows us to solve those problems, which is what modern civilization and industrial association is, is, is created enormous benefits. But what got us here won't get us there. We're now starting to see the kinds of things that that solution methodology, rational process is no longer able to do. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, was, it was good for solving things that are amenable to rational treatment, but it's not good for solving things that are not amenable to rational treatment. So now we're basically starting to encounter a larger and larger class of problems for which our current tools and techniques don't work. And so, of course, we'll have to have new tools and techniques. And so what the metaphysics allows us to do, what makes it relevant, is that it gives us 
clear guidelines as to not only where to focus our attention and what things are important, what matters in this case, what is relevant, but also the characteristics of how to engage with that. What are the kinds of ways in which we would understand what's needed to restore the balance, to restore uh, a sense of agency uh, in humanity to essentially create for itself a positive future. Um, you know, and, and, and that's, that's not a trivial thing. You know, when we, when we look at say the philosophy of, of John Locke, uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, which was a novel idea at the time, you know, 300 years ago, that that has, in a sense, provided a kind of impetus for the, even the existence of the United States, for us to even pursue this experiment and um, individualization as a as a values or as a priority basis to to make choices and to explore how that kind of thing can work, which we've done. I mean, this is this has clearly had a transformative impact on the world, but in the same sort of way that. Postmodernism can essentially say, hey, by the way, there's a lot of things that modernism doesn't do well. And here's all the critiques of, of the things that it's failing at. Unfortunately, postmodernism doesn't really give us a sense of how to make good choices. It just gives us a sense of the kinds of things that are currently wrong. So in a sense, modernism moves us away from nature, i.e. forces driven in terms of changes yeah. towards causation, right? technology, science and tech. Um, and then postmodern is basically saying, no, we need to go from causal relationships to choice-based orientations. I mean, think about what um, a lot of the critiques are. It talks about things having to do with consent, having to do with equality and equality issues, uh, the ways in which communities need to basically have uh, their rights respected and so on. There's a, there's a notion here of choice emphasis and unfortunately, of course, you know, there's a still infection going on where, um, you know, you, you can use causal process to try to dominate other people's choices. So in effect, it becomes kind of a political thing where um, if I use a manipulation technique, a causal process to essentially suppress another group's choice, that is essentially a weapon. And weapons take away choices. They don't create choices. So if I basically am using causation to take away your choice, then I'm effectively I'm extorting from you or I'm stealing from you or I'm hurting you in some way, right? I'm I'm diminishing your capacity to live a full, rich life. So in, in this particular sense, the philosophy allows us to become clearer about the essential dynamics of what's actually happening. It allows us to recognize weaponization when it is occurring and to identify it as that. And to basically say, here's an alternative process. Like if we're if we're currently caught caught in dynamics of competition, we might notice, oh, by the way, here's what cooperation looks like. Here's how we can implement more of that. Here's how we can get clearer about what those kinds of things are and what sort of values and uh, meaningfulness of life they are in a sense going to be in relation to. So that's where it becomes uh, relevant or applied or moves into the space of going from uh, rules, which are simple ways of thinking, back down to principles, which are sort of essential truths about life being in the universe and from a clear understanding of those principles to create new practices how communities work how relationships work how and even the word work is essentially a sort of bias of our language how do communities play together and can they play together in a way that isn't driven by competition but is actually driven by a sense of shared enjoyment shared um, discovery of the beauty of life and, and the sense of appreciation that we can have together and so when I'm thinking about friendships, it's not just about need satisfaction. I'll help you to meet your needs if you help me to meet mine. But then the next level of 
wow, I've discovered this really cool movie or book or or someone I really want to introduce you because they're awesome and wonderful to share that with another person because then we're experiencing how they are experiencing delight and 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 experiences of oh I also know about some things that I would love you to know about just books or movies or friends that I have that you would really enjoy chatting with so so in this sense there's a there's 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 a sort of transition away from purpose driven need satisfaction mm-hmm. back to an even deeper basis which we might think of as desires right not wants but desires you know, desires live in the interface between needs can only be satisfied internally to self and wants are only satisfied externally to self, right? A want is uh, what the entire advertising industry is trying to induce in you so that you'll buy something from them, right? Well, and what you just did there was what I found super fascinating about imminent metaphysics was that was uh, what, what I got out of, out of that was that the relationship between self and world is more fundamental or more real than either self or world. And and I just heard you say desire as being the relationship versus just external or just internal. And, exactly. and that was something I was also really interested in exploring or like, cause that feels really profound and like really important in some deep sense. And I was really interested in exploring the implications of, of, of relationship as being more fundamental than either self or world subjective objective. And, and yeah, as, as you've been speaking, I've been, I've been sitting with that a bit because I'm, I'm hearing this undertone of, of relationships as being primary. If, if the, the machine, if we're being co-opted by the machine, by, by, um, yeah, then, then essentially the, uh, how I think I'm understanding is that the objective is like co-opting the, the subjective and the relationships and in the relate in the relationships. Yeah. That was, that's the observation, the right? Because it, and you've got it exactly right. The idea is, is that if we think about machinery or system or business or institution, all of those are in the objective relative to our subjective our subjective in a sense comes last it's like people uh suborn their desires you know for life liberty and the pursuit of happiness in the sense of i've got to earn money in order to have the right to have those things right that's that's the delusion of the american dream is that you can't really have the american dream unless you participate in the system Mm -hmm. right and and so in a sense um and, and this might be somewhat controversial but the the idea of whether or not you participate in the system should also be a choice. You know, we're, we're in the United States, we're, we're free to participate in the economic system in any way we want to, but we're not free to not participate in the economic system. I'll I'll give you an explicit example. Um, In many States in the United States, it's illegal to be homeless. Right. But if you're not participating in the system, that means you don't own a house. And therefore by definition, you're homeless. I mean, if you have a relationship as a renter with an apartment, then you have, you know, a legal right to stay there. But if you don't, then you don't. And and, and in effect, if everything in the world is 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 um, either proper private property or state property, i.e. commons property, and it's illegal to just reside in the commons property, then in effect, you have no place to be. You've, you've just made yourself essentially an illegal citizen. And so in this sense, there is a real issue around you know, whether or not you have economic freedom. It's a bit like saying, you know, you're, you are, the, the, the metaphor would be um, you walk into an auto dealership and the 
they're going to try to convince you that the option is to buy the red car or the blue car or this model or that model. They want you to buy something. It doesn't really matter what you buy. If you vote Republican or Democrat, either way, you're buying into the idea that you're transferring your sovereign choices to them. Mm-hmm. You're ratifying that you are choosing that they will do your choices for you. Right. And so, you know, that's why it's so obvious to everybody that um, both sides are all trying to convince you to vote. Even if you vote for the other party, they would rather that you vote because they know that next year or the year after that, at some point in the future, they will be voted in. And that it's, they, they just want to make sure the system keeps going because that's how it works. So in effect, if we prioritize system or objective, i.e. purpose, over subjective or relationship, mm-hmm. then over time, subjective and relationship are going to degrade. I mean, it's just it's just the natural thing. I mean, at a certain point, you just don't have relationships anymore. And people will feel actually quite disconnected from one another, which they do. And so there's, there's a sense here of not just swinging the pendulum all the other way, which is partly the reason why modernism had such force in the last few hundred years anyways. It's because prior to that, it was the subjective was dominant, right? I.e., uh, religious values suborned, i.e. subjective, suborned, subjective in the transcendent sense. Like, you know, Christianity talks about the here and hereafter as being a priority over the here and now. Right? You'll go to heaven at the end of your life. And uh, Islam and other religions emphasize that too. Live a virtuous life and in the in the transcendent, in the hereafter, you will have a wonderful time. Do badly in this life and you'll go straight to hell i.e. you'll have a terrible time. So in other words, it was a kind of co-opting of personal choice, relational process in service to an abstraction, a transcendent abstraction in this particular case, an ideology of heaven and hell as a hereafter or other than the present moment. And so in this sense, we're, we're looking at needing to come into relationship as being primary understanding how to be healthy in our relationships in a holistic sense mm-hmm. so that both the objective and the subjective are well supported. So I'm not advocating for an idealism and I'm not advocating for a realism, a kind of pessimism of the machine, a nihilism of the world is an awful place or a world is a perfect divine place, right? An emanation of divinity of some sort. I'm basically saying if we ground ourselves in the knowledge of what is, not for the purposes that it has and not just for the values that it has, but for the meaningfulness and relevance that it is in our intersubjective, that this is going to be a better guide for good choices than either things that are purely objective or purely subjective. So, you know, in effect, this is an axiom one statement It's essentially saying, Hey, not only is it the case that at the very essence of the scientific method as a kind of, reification of the relationship between the first person and the third person itself ultimately has to be resolved in the second person at a relational level, mm-hmm. uh, which currently isn't happening, but needs to be that there's a, that there's a sense of deep integration that we have yet to learn as a species. This goes back to not just being driven by, um, you know, unconscious instincts as given by evolutionary process encoded in our genes and bodies and physical mechanism for the last billion years. And certainly not driven just by the external objective causation of what technology tells us is is our options, but essentially a deep 
consciousness process that allows us to integrate and transcend both of those. So we can actually think about how to hold the relationship between those in a genuinely healthy way, because that's what's needed in order to continue our species and to continue the well-being of this world, which we are currently needing to become stewards of, to be in right relationship with that. So, yeah, the metaphysics is at this particular point, uh, at least so far as my thinking is concerned, um, been an absolute diamond sharp tool of uh, cutting through a lot of the detritus and really getting out a way of perceiving and having a perspective on the entire constellation of these issues. And what is the ordinating basis? What is the compass, the ethical compass that allows us to move forward in a mm-hmm. way that isn't driven by, again, some sort of revered, um, you know, handed down by some spirit or um, driven by uh, purely external concerns, which have no soul. Right. There's a sense in which to hold that well is a skill. And to, to, to be able to navigate what is our current position? Where are we? Where are we trying to go? And how do we get there is essentially informed by a map, a compass and a knowledge of your current position. That's what's going to keep us from going off the cliff or into one. So, yeah, the, the, the metaphysics is a, is a uh, conceptual toolkit that allows us to navigate some of the deepest and most primary issues of our time. Mm-hmm. In fact, I haven't seen any other toolkit that comes even close to being able to do this. Um, there are certain value systems which are very helpful, um, but being able to get down to the level of reifying principles in order to be able to create genuinely known well good practices, known good practices, um, out of which maybe they will emerge at some future point, new rules of understanding. But the heuristics will come in time. At this particular point, we need actual deep integration with uh, what are the principles of living a good life? Yeah, that's yeah, so fascinating. So well said. Um... Have I tied together all of the triples of which you had interest? <laughs> yes. Yes, you have. Definitely have tied together all of the triples in a very deep way. And yeah, the core intention of, of um, the implications of them definitely satisfied with um, all of these examples and implications. And um, yeah, what, yeah, really, I feel, I do feel like you really grounded a lot of the triples in a lot of these real world scenarios and a lot of what's happening in historical contexts as well. And yeah, it, I feel, I feel really satisfied with, with the the art that you took um and yeah there was so so much coming up um but i couldn't and but but as i said uh, shortly like it the there's this theme of relationships as fundamental that i just keep hearing and everything that you're saying and i keep getting being reminded of um yeah like i you spoke a bit about like dialogue and and like deep listening as 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 perhaps ways that we can really um go about that or at least that's how i'm thinking about it is like like what does it i'm asking myself like what does it look like to have really deep listening and and to have really poignant questions to get at um what is for another person um and also and i i found it really interesting um when you said it's not sub it's not objective the machine it's not also subjective but but there but um 
with the with the triad of meaning, value, and purpose, there's this meaning. And what I thought I heard you said was like there's like this inherent meaningfulness in the intersubjective that can be explored, which is which is the um, as relationships as primary. And and I also heard I was also hearing this thread, which I'm it's not clear to me if this is what you were saying, but with the modalities in the metaphysics, omniscient, transcendent, imminent, I was almost hearing that being talked about as well. And that there's like this omniscient objective machine and that's not it. There's this transcendent kind of a uh, pre-modern spirits, um, but, but almost like pushing for more imminence or, or like that, like the imminence is what we've lost. Um, so yeah, that was that was a very interesting thread. I was getting curious about as well. Well, it it shows up in in that fundamental sense. The axioms would say that the imminence is more fundamental than the omniscient and the transcendent. But we have this collective delusion that allows us to pay attention to the omniscient that is not easy to think on in terms of the transcendent or the imminent. And, and so let me let me actually ground that. Like this is this mm-hmm. is maybe an expression of. Why did it all go wrong? Like, how did we get here? Okay. And there's a, there's a, there's a sort of question uh, that is parallel to this, that, that sort of clarifies that, which is, say, for example, we look at the triple perceiver, perceived, and perceiving. Mm-hmm. So perceiver being the subjective, the perceived being the objective, and the perceiver being the process, the imminent, the, the intersubjective as a process of, <laughs> excuse me, I have a bit of a cold, I'm still clearing it. Um, so the intersubjective is basically the medium through which we are perceiving the other, perceiving the world. But in this sense, we can ask, can we perceive the perceiver? Can we perceive the perceiving or can we only just perceive that which is perceivable? And if we think about it from, say, a physics point of view, light, if I'm looking at just optical perception, light flows from whatever object and goes into my eyes. And I I sense, you know, colors and shapes and things. There's a sense in which the light itself as a transit from, you know, an energy moving from, in this case, the surface of my computer monitor to my eyes. If I had light that was crossing this way, like you had another person standing here and they're looking at a, at a, at a cup or a bookshelf or something, mm. the light passes through, right? They can see across what I'm seeing through. And so, or they can see through, what I'm looking at that is, is, is a crossing in space. Two, two laser beams go right through one another. Neither affects the other. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, not only is it the case that I can't perceive your consciousness, I can only perceive your body. I can't see what you're looking at in the sense of being you. I have to, in a sense, look at it myself. Right? I can't see your seeing. And I can't see you as the subjective perceiving. And I can only perceive the objects. Whatever you can perceive, I can presumably perceive because perception works the same for both of us. But that itself is the thing that essentially assumes that the objective is going to be as a form, something we can talk about. Whereas 
talking about the subjective or talking about the interrelationship is really, really hard because you can't point to it. You can't look at it. Right. You can you can sense how you're experiencing yourself, your own emotions and feelings and so on. But those aren't directly shareable with other people. We have to translate them into forms, words, shapes, drawings, you know, what, whatever way we can represent them. But the, the, the thing is not that the map is not the territory. So the so the words that represent the emotions are not my emotions. So so in this sense, there's a kind of natural emphasis on the objective as being easier to work with, easier to point to, easier to, to essentially access than the subjective or the intersubjective. Right. So right. in this sense, science and technology has in effect a kind of advantage in the sense that it's possible to understand it and communicate it and talk about it in itself. Whereas talking about values, that's actually kind of hard. And talking about feelings, that's even harder. Mm -hmm. So so in effect, there's a, there's a sense of recognizing that in the same way that the perceiver and the perceiving are just as real as the perceived, that we therefore have to correct for this sort of fundamental metaphysical bias, the bias of being itself. That in effect, it's easier to do, it's easier to talk about doing. It's not so easy to reside in being and mm -hmm. becoming the sense of creation or change or, or in a sense, growth, wisdom. Those are almost impossible to talk about, right? The subjective in this particular sense of, you know, how, how do you transfer wisdom from one person to another? It's impossible, right? I mean, you know, a father can guide his son over a period of, a few decades to make good choices in their life, right? They can, through their love, help the child to make good choices because eventually the father knows they're going to die and the child will live on in theory, right? Obviously that doesn't always happen in practice, but it does most of the time. And so in effect, there's a, there's a notion here that you really want to have wisdom do transfer in an intergenerational way, but we need to better actually focus on that given the knowledge that this is actually something that requires essentially kind of compensation for a bias that would otherwise exist, right? That, that in effect to value wisdom is like valuing something that's invisible and hard to point to, but we know that it's real and we know that it's relevant in a kind of cognitive sense. So in effect, we have to enter into this sort of practice of knowing axiom one of valuing the relationship rather than just the function that the relationship has. And valuing the sense of conscientiousness, the consciousness, which helps us to make good choices in regards to our relationships. So actually valuing psychological and spiritual health or community health, mm -hmm. right? So yeah. in this sense, the inner process as a sort of spiritual discipline becomes a capacity to hold relational process, i.e. what we think of as communities or religious ideals, as being well held in the world because we haven't been suborned by the bias, the bias of being that, the, 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 that in effect would have us just look to satisfying wants. Mm -hmm. like just look at commercial process or transactional process. Yeah. We're getting ahead in a sense of power, right? Hierarchy. 
as as essentially being like, well, those are sort of false idols. They they're certainly important, but they're not the be all and end all of existence. Right. It might right. seem like that, but it's not true. And so, in effect, there's a, there's a sense here of, you know, having to sort of take on this discipline of prioritizing relationship as a constant, ongoing practice, and valuing the basis by which we make choices as much as the cooperative way in which we make choices. Like, what are the deep passions and desires that drive us? Are those being sourced from externally driven stuff like addictions, marketing and internet advertising, even that the advertising of your friends of I'm having a great vacation, you should be here, you should be like me, right? Pulling us out of ourselves into the illusion of what we should be, as opposed to a knowledge of what is actually our nature to be. So in this sense, there's a there's a, there's the there's a kind of spiritual discipline here that in effect is valuing the romantic, valuing the symbolic, valuing the relational, because that needs to be done in order to restore the balance in the real. Right? The real is that which is at once choice, change, and causation. At this point, the metaphysics tells us this point blank period, no questions. It's like that is your necessary and sufficient criterion for real any of those ingredients missing the notion of real goes away and this of course is another technicality to say that something is real is not to make a claim about its existence or its objectivity right time is real but it does not exist and so in effect the, the metaphysics is like a toolkit that allows us to notice have discernment about these kinds of things so that we can enter into better attunement at a social relational emotional level because if we just are up in the cognitive, sure, it's easy to talk about thinking. And if we're just in the embodiment, well, we're not talking about anything at all, but we're sure as heck feeling a lot. But it's it's like it's it's actually quite challenging to work with the embodiment and the atoms because there's just so much momentum there. Right. Physical health, trying to restore physical health is not easy. Right. We have to, in a sense, have enough health in the environment and in our bodies for healing to happen. So in a sense, between these two things of mental and physical, you know, mind and sensation that you want to have essentially a kind of capacity to work with one another on an emotional level in an attunement sort of sense. And to strengthen our discernment through that, use our discernment to strengthen that, you know, both directions, so that in the net effect in our relationships with one another, that we actually come to higher levels of wisdom as both individuals and as communities and as a world as a species in relation to other species in an ecosystem. And to be able to hold that notion holistically is just more complex. It is inherently complex. It's not the kind of thing that's going to be comprehensible with reason by itself. Because reason's not going to tell us anything about the basis of our values. Our values are ultimately going to come back down to something to do with life. Right? There's something to do with meaningfulness of life. What is ultimately sacred? So in a sense, there's a recognition that somewhere along the way, we need both intuition and intellect finely mixed together in order to be able to do the kinds of things that need to be done. Intuitions about our natures as combined with an understanding of the world and intellectual comprehension of what does health even mean? And so in effect, it's it's like we 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 are operating from a basis of passion rather than from a basis of want satisfaction, which is essentially empty 
or need satisfaction, which is essentially driven by unconscious levels of, of, of process that aren't actually reflective of anything that's going on outside of oneself. In effect, uh, need satisfaction can be very selfish. It's not to say we don't or shouldn't have our needs met. It's just to say that that's not the only thing going on. And so there's a, there's, there's a need for us, basically, to become more skillful in the interior, to be holding the relational, rather than just to be focusing on the outside and pretending that nothing else exists or nothing else is real. Yeah, it's just that's just that's just like I said, the, the, the metaphysics provides like point blank clarity about these kinds of issues. It's like there's just, there's just no doubt. Even the action of having doubt essentially instantiates the process of doubt as a thing. So in other words, anything that's intrinsic to the nature of doubt is just true. Same way that anything intrinsic to the nature of process in general, doubt as a particular kind of process, process in general is just true. It's just it's just part of the being of the world. Um. Minor technicality, but even the relationship between truth and falsity is more basic than both the notions of truth and falsity. So I'm talking about truth in this sense. I'm talking about a capital T type of truth, a sort of meta truth, rather than, you know, just just uh, the basic notion that we're holding here. Mm -hmm. It allows us to understand things in a general way, but still have discovery of all of the specific stuff that never could have been predicted in advance. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, my God, there's so many good threads here. Um, I'm going to be conscious of time too, maybe like 15 or so. Yeah, I actually have another meeting at noon, which is 10 minutes from okay. now, my time. Okay, yeah. So we'll we'll keep it quick um, and we'll start wrapping up. There was, there was one, there was one thing. There were, there were two things here that felt really relevant. One was, uh, in, in as you wrote in Imminent Metaphysics, it's like, to me, it fe what I'm getting is that the, the reason that Imminent Metaphysics in these core ideas are so relevant is because we, you talk about the core assumption of like the entirety of like Western culture is that of, of um, um, dualism and physical monism and and that's what i was hearing you say is that we just assume that only that is real uh, objective is real and it feels really cool to explore the ways in which relationships and and other things are also are like this the the differing of these metaphysics feels fascinating but the other thread that i wanted to just um quickly note here was um what you talked about um, extensively on simplicity, clarity, and um, complexity. And I, and I think it's really fascinating what you were just saying right there with, with that. It's so complex, these things that we're talking about, the relationships and what it means to honor the relationship and to not be in the cognitive all the time, but also in the felt experience of being alive, being able to communicate that in, 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 and that was really an aha moment for me this week when I was like really diving into your work was like, I do feel this push in our culture to like simplify everything. And if it's not simple, then it's like, and, it, and I really appreciate your, your uh, framing that like complexity with clarity is much better than just simplicity or, 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 or it's more effective at people choice get, making, wisdom, et cetera. Exactly. People get confused between a desire for clarity and a desire for simplicity. They think they want simplicity, but what they usually want is actually clarity. Yeah. 
And, and so in, in, as a result of the confusion, rather than pursuing clarity, they pursue simplicity. And as a result, they, they kind of move into reaction against complexity. Now, <clears throat> the same sort of thing is important. So in other words, usually the way I say it is simplicity, complexity, and then clarity. So in other words, if we think about just the way things happen, you take simple things and simple things over time evolve into complex things. And you end up with these arms races that look like they're going to go on forever. Because what is an end of an arms race? Well, it's just more and more complicated systems being used, right? And eventually you just basically run out of the capacity to pursue it and the other guy wins. So in effect, there is a sense in which though we say, well, wait a minute. What are the ways in which we transcend and include, right? This is a philosophy that goes back way before me. But the point is, is that the idea is, is that there is a kind of clarity that can come and act as a solvent for complexity. So I can notice, for example, that biological systems like each of us sitting here in these rooms are trillion cell organisms. I'm not even minimizing. It's at least a trillion. It's probably much more than that. Just in terms of physical counts, mm -hmm. a trillion cells, that's a big number, right? And there is this irreducible complexity associated with even one cell, right? The chemistry involved in the, the, the organic chemistry involved in one cell, if you ever choose to explore that, it's fascinating. The digestive thing is like a diagram that fills an entire wall. And that's just the more basic kind of way of describing the actual chemistry that includes any one of those relationships would probably be another diagram of equations in a quantum mechanical sense. That's just for one interaction. I mean, it's the, the level of complexity associated between systems and organs and tissues, cells, interior to a cell, even the single chemistry of a particular reaction. All of these things have such an incredible level of intrinsic complexity in order to be life. And of course, we don't want to minimize the value of that at all. But we can notice in a clear way that life is valuable. Life is meaningful. There is no meaningfulness that is not alive. And there is no aliveness that is not meaningful. And, and, and really like, don't just hear those words, but just genuinely connect with that. No meaningfulness that is not alive. And no aliveness that is not meaningful. All creatures, great and small, all matter. They're all meaningful. They're all relevant. And that's a generalization that is incredibly clear. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, we can move to an orientation that is an orientation from clarity. Like even science itself, you know, they... They pursue theories which are elegant. What does elegant mean? It means it's profoundly clear. Mm -hmm. It connects multiple metaphors, it's a, multiple observations, multiple domains of experience in a, in a single clear perspective. And, 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 and it's not that it's simple. It's that the clarity itself transcends the complexity. And that's why we consider it to be of interest. It's meaningful in that sense. So, in this moment, we're basically saying, well, let's actually value the clarity. Value the complexity and value the clarity. And and and, and not just mm -hmm. value the simplicity, which is at this particular point kind of a delusion. 
It's a, it's a misunderstanding. It's an obsession in the wrong place, which is what addictions generally are. It's an obsession in the wrong place. So, you know, is it desirable to have passions be realized? Of course it is. Do they get suborned and all sorts of technology, marketing, commercialism sort of things? Do they get suborned in processes that essentially kind of connect to interior delusions that we have? Of course they do. How do we resolve that? We get clear about what actually matters and what is the way in which we can focus on how to be disciplined about noticing the relational, noticing the imminent, and upholding that in our choices, valuing that in a way that essentially becomes a guide for our choices. And our choices will, in that way, have greater degrees of wisdom integrated with them. So what do we focus on? We focus on emotional attunement in our relationships. We prioritize the relationships. We prioritize the discernment that we have about ourselves so that we can be more in conscientiousness in those relationships and that we effectively make choices individually and globally from this basis. Even if it isn't as maximally efficient at extraction of profit, it will in the long term be more satisfying for everybody concerned. And so in, in this particular sense, there's, there's a kind of recognition that, you know, we really need to actually get clear about what matters in order for us to make choices that supports what matters. And, you know, again, there's all sorts of delusions out there. Obviously, we're not going to be able to correct all of that in the two minutes that are remaining to us. <laughs> but at least in this particular sense, I hope that this has given hints, really, really strong hints about what are the directions and the orientations and the emphasis from which we can move. Mm-hmm. It would actually uh, just shift the whole perspective altogether. Absolutely. Thank you so much for speaking with me today, Forrest. It's such an honor. And uh, yeah, the your your clarity is is really inspiring. <laughs> um, 